Hello and welcome to our podcast on the three scenarios for interest rates in the transition to normalcy. Today, we will be discussing the Federal Reserve's monetary policy and its impact on the economy. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States and is responsible for implementing monetary policy. Monetary policy refers to the actions taken by the central bank to influence the supply of money and credit in the economy. The Federal Reserve's primary objective is to promote price stability and maximum employment. In response to the 2008 financial crisis, the Federal Reserve implemented a series of unconventional monetary policies to stimulate the economy. One of these policies was the purchase of large quantities of long-term securities, which increased the supply of excess reserves in the banking system. Excess reserves are funds held by banks in excess of their required reserves. The Federal Reserve's decision to add $600 billion in excess reserves to the banking system in 2008 had significant consequences for the banking system and the economy. The excess reserves held by banks have increased significantly since the financial crisis. This has led to concerns about the impact of excess reserves on the banking system and the economy. One concern is that excess reserves may lead to inflation if banks start to lend out these funds. Another concern is that excess reserves may lead to financial instability if banks become too reliant on these funds. To address these concerns, the Federal Reserve has implemented a number of policies to ease monetary conditions. These policies include forward guidance, which is a commitment by the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low for an extended period of time, and quantitative easing, which is the purchase of long-term securities by the Federal Reserve to increase the supply of excess reserves in the banking system. In this article, Diana A. Cook and William T. Gavin discuss three potential monetary policy regimes that the Federal Reserve may adopt in the transition to normalcy. The first regime is the credibility regime, which is characterized by a commitment to price stability and a strong reputation for following through on that commitment. The second regime is the no-credibility regime, which is characterized by a lack of commitment to price stability and a weak reputation for following through on that commitment. The third regime is the inflation regime, which is characterized by a commitment to high inflation and a disregard for price stability. The authors use a database scheme to identify time series models for interest rates associated with each regime. Data from unique episodes before 2008 are used to estimate the models, which are then simulated to forecast the U.S. economy during the 2008-2013 period. The authors then compare the forecasts from the three regimes to determine which regime is most likely to occur in the transition to normalcy. The authors find that the credibility regime is the most likely scenario in the transition to normalcy. This regime is characterized by a gradual increase in interest rates and a steepening of the yield curve. The authors also find that the no-credibility regime is the least likely scenario as it is associated with a loss of confidence in the Federal Reserve and a return to high inflation. In conclusion, the Federal Reserve's monetary policy has a significant impact on the economy. The Federal Reserve's decision to add excess reserves to the banking system in 2008 had significant consequences for the banking system and the economy. The Federal Reserve has implemented a number of policies to ease monetary conditions, including forward guidance, 
and quantitative easing. The authors of this article discuss three potential monetary policy regimes that the Federal Reserve may adopt in the transition to normalcy. The authors find that the credibility Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, where we will be discussing the Federal Reserve's efforts to maintain price stability and forecast inflation. The Federal Reserve, also known as the Fed, is the central bank of the United States. One of its primary responsibilities is to promote sustainable economic growth and low inflation rates. To achieve this goal, the Fed has a dual mandate to maximize employment and stabilize prices. In this podcast, we will be exploring how the Fed uses economic data to forecast key variables such as GDP growth and inflation. We will also discuss the significance of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act for the Fed's monetary policy responsibilities. To begin, let's talk about how the Fed measures price stability. Price stability refers to the rate at which prices for goods and services are increasing or decreasing over time. The Fed's preferred measure of price stability is the Personal Consumption Expenditures PCE Price Index, which measures the change in prices of goods and services that consumers purchase. The Fed uses a variety of economic data to forecast inflation, including measures of labor market conditions, consumer spending, and business investment. One of the key tools the Fed uses to forecast inflation is the Phillips curve, which shows the relationship between unemployment and inflation. When unemployment is low, inflation tends to be higher, and vice versa. In addition to forecasting inflation, the Fed also monitors financial stability risks. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which was passed in response to the 2008 financial crisis, gave the Fed additional responsibilities for monitoring and addressing systemic risks in the financial system. Overall, the Fed plays a critical role in promoting sustainable economic growth and low inflation rates. By using economic data to forecast key variables such as GDP growth and inflation, the Fed is able to make informed decisions about monetary policy. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act has also given the Fed additional responsibilities for monitoring and addressing systemic risks in the financial system. In conclusion, the Fed's efforts to maintain price stability and forecast inflation are essential for promoting sustainable economic growth and low inflation rates. By using a variety of economic data and tools, the Fed is able to make informed decisions about monetary policy. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act has also given the Fed additional responsibilities for monitoring and addressing systemic risks in the financial system. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode and we hope you gained a better understanding of the Fed's role in the economy. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on the Federal Reserve's efforts to maintain price, stability, and forecast inflation. We hope you found this discussion informative and helpful in understanding the Fed's role in the economy. 
If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode, where we will be discussing another important topic related to the economy. Hello, and welcome to our podcast on risk aversion at the country level. Today, we'll be exploring the fascinating world of risk aversion and its impact on economic growth and development. Risk aversion is a concept that refers to an individual's willingness to take on risk in exchange for potential rewards. Some people are more risk averse than others, and this can have important implications for their economic decisions. For example, a risk-averse person might be less likely to invest in a high-risk, high-reward venture, while a risk-tolerant person might be more willing to take that chance. But what about at the country level? How does risk aversion impact a country's economic growth and development? That's the question that this PDF seeks to answer. The PDF begins by introducing the authors and thanking the Inter-American Development Bank and the Gallup Organization for facilitating access to the Gallup World Poll data. It also includes a disclaimer that the views expressed in the article are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Federal Reserve System, the Board of Governors, or the regional Federal Reserve Banks. Moving on to the content of the PDF, the authors note that while there has been a lot of research on risk aversion at the individual level, there has been relatively little research on risk aversion at the country level. To fill this gap, the authors use self-reports of personal well-being from the 2006 Gallup World Poll to elicit risk aversion measures for 75 countries, including 52 developing countries. The authors then go on to explore the relationship between risk aversion and economic growth and development. They find that countries with higher levels of risk aversion tend to have lower levels of economic growth and development. This is because risk-averse individuals are less likely to take on risky investments, which can lead to lower levels of innovation and entrepreneurship. The authors also explore different approaches to measuring risk aversion, including the consumption-based CAPIM approach and the self-reported well-being approach used in this study. They find that the self-reported well-being approach is a useful tool for measuring risk aversion at the country level, as it allows for cross-country comparisons and is less affected by cultural and institutional differences than other approaches. Overall, this PDF provides valuable insights into the impact of risk aversion on economic growth and development at the country level. By understanding the relationship between risk aversion and economic outcomes, policymakers can make more informed decisions about how to promote innovation and entrepreneurship in their countries and encourage listeners to read the PDF for more in-depth information on the topic. In conclusion, risk aversion is an important concept that has implications for economic growth and development at both the individual and country level. This PDF provides valuable insights into how risk aversion can be measured and how it impacts economic outcomes. We hope that this podcast has been informative and has encouraged you to learn more about this fascinating Oh,
and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an interesting topic that affects us all, the welfare cost of business cycles. Business cycles refer to the fluctuations in economic activity that occur over time, including periods of expansion and contraction. These cycles can have a significant impact on the welfare of households, particularly those with varying abilities to access the market. Our guest today is Yili Qian, an economist who has conducted extensive research on the welfare cost of business cycles with heterogeneous trading technologies. In his recent article, Qian explores the impact of aggregate output fluctuations on the welfare of households with varying abilities to access the market. So, what exactly does this mean? Well, in simple terms, Qian is interested in understanding how different households are affected by changes in the economy. Some households may have more resources and better access to the market, while others may be more limited in their ability to participate. To study this, Qian develops a model that closely follows that of previous research, but with a novel feature, the imposition of restrictions on the menu of assets that households are able to trade. These restrictions are imposed exogenously to capture the observed portfolio behavior of most households. Chan distinguishes between two types of households, passive traders and active traders. Passive traders take their portfolio composition as given and simply choose how much to save or disave in each period. Other households constantly manage their portfolios in response to changes in the investment opportunity set. These households are referred to as active traders since they optimally adjust the composition of their portfolios every period. Qian's model consists of a continuum of heterogeneous households subject to both idiosyncratic income shocks and aggregate endowment shocks. By comparing two scenarios, one with investment mistakes and the other without heterogeneous trading technologies, Qian demonstrates that these investment mistakes not only affect the risk premium patterns but also cause a large welfare cost. In other words, Qian's research shows that households with limited access to the market are more vulnerable to the negative effects of business cycles. If all households consist of active traders who do not make any investment mistakes, then the risk premium is low and stable in the calibrated economy. Moreover, the welfare cost of business cycles is almost negligible and similar to the result found by Lucas, 1987. This finding emphasizes the importance of the study of household finance because preventing investment mistakes can considerably improve welfare. Qian's research contributes to our understanding of the benefits of stabilizing cyclical fluctuations in an economy. Overall, Qian's research highlights the importance of understanding the impact of business a, cycles on households with varying abilities to access the market. By developing a model that incorporates heterogeneous trading technologies, Qian demonstrates that investment mistakes can have a significant impact on the welfare of households. This research has important implications for policymakers, who can use this information to design policies that help to stabilize the economy and reduce the negative impact of business cycles on vulnerable households. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of our podcast. We hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. Be sure to join us next time.
Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, where we will be discussing the impact of informal employment on the design of unemployment insurance and employment protection policies. First, let's define what we mean by informal employment. Informal employment refers to work that is not regulated by the government and is not included in official statistics. This type of work is often characterized by low wages, poor working conditions, and lack of social protection. Informal employment is prevalent in many developing countries, but it also exists in developed countries. So, why is it important to consider informal employment when designing unemployment insurance and employment protection policies? Well, for starters, a large share of economic activity takes place in the informal sector in many countries. This means that a significant portion of the workforce is not covered by social protection programs, such as unemployment insurance and employment protection. This is where the research discussed in the PDF comes in. The authors of the PDF, Emilio Espino and Juan M. Sinchez, developed a model to study how the risk of informality affects the optimal design of unemployment insurance and employment protection policies. They extended the simple model of unemployment insurance developed by Blanchard and T. Roll to add informality. Their analysis shows that the risk of informality can have a significant impact on the design of these policies. For example, they found that when there is a high risk of informality, it may be optimal to have lower unemployment benefits and higher employment protection. This is because workers may be more likely to work in the informal sector if the benefits of formal employment are not high enough. The authors also found that the optimal design of these policies depends on a number of factors, such as the level of risk aversion among workers and the degree of monitoring of the informal sector. Overall, the research presented in the PDF highlights the importance of considering informal employment when designing social protection policies. It also shows that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to this problem and that policy design must take into account the specific context of each country. In conclusion, the impact of informal employment on social protection policies is an important issue that deserves more attention from policymakers and researchers alike. By understanding the challenges posed by informal employment, we can develop more effective policies that provide social protection to all workers, regardless of their employment status. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode, and we hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on the impact of informal employment on the Design of Unemployment Insurance and Employment Protection Policies We hope you found this discussion informative and insightful. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF that we referenced in this episode. It provides a more detailed analysis of the issues we discussed and offers valuable insights into the optimal design of social protection policies. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to bringing you more informative and engaging.
Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the United States' role in foreign business cycles. This is an important topic that affects not only the U.S. economy, but also the global economy as a whole. To begin, let's define what we mean by business cycles. A business cycle is a recurring pattern of economic expansion and contraction. During an expansion, the economy grows, and during a contraction, the economy shrinks. These cycles can be influenced by a variety of factors, including government policies, technological advancements, and global events. Now, let's talk about the United States' role in these business cycles. The U.S. is the largest economy in the world, and as such, its economic performance has a significant impact on other countries. When the U.S. economy is growing, other countries often experience growth as well. Conversely, when the U.S. economy is contracting, other countries may also experience a slowdown. One example of this is the Great Recession of 2007-9. This was a period of economic downturn that began in the U.S. and quickly spread to other countries. The recession was caused by a variety of factors, including the housing market crash and the collapse of several large financial institutions. The U.S. government responded with a series of policies aimed at stabilizing the economy, but the effects of the recession were felt around the world. So, why is it important to understand the U.S.'s role in foreign business cycles? For one, it can help policymakers make informed decisions about economic policies. If a country is heavily reliant on the U.S. economy, for example, it may need to take steps to mitigate the effects of a U.S. recession. Additionally, Understanding the global impact of U.S. economic policies can help prevent unintended consequences. There are several methodologies that economists use to study the relationship between the U.S. economy and other countries. One approach is to use statistical models to analyze the effects of U.S. economic shocks on other countries. Another approach is to examine the transmission channels through which these shocks are transmitted. For example, a U.S. recession may lead to a decrease in demand for goods and services, which can then affect other countries that rely on exports to the U.S. In conclusion, the United States' role in foreign business cycles is an important topic that affects the global economy. Understanding this relationship can help policymakers make informed decisions and prevent unintended consequences. While there are several methodologies for studying this relationship, it is clear that the U.S. economy has a significant impact on other countries and that this impact can be both positive and negative. As such, it is important for policymakers to consider the global implications of U.S. economic policies and to take steps to mitigate the effects of economic downturns. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode on the United States' role in foreign business cycles. We hope that you found this information informative and useful. If you have any questions or comments, Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic that affects all of us, the fluctuations in OECD budget balances.
Hey, to begin with, let's understand what OECD is. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, is an intergovernmental economic organization with 37 member countries, founded in 1961 to stimulate economic progress and world trade. The OECD provides a forum in which governments can work together to share experiences and seek solutions to common problems. Now let's talk about the PDF that we will be discussing today. The PDF is titled Common Fluctuations in OECD Budget Balances and is written by Christopher J. Neely and David E. Rapich. The authors analyze the effects of international circumstances on fiscal balances and use a dynamic latent factor model to analyze co-movements in OECD surpluses. So, what does this mean? In simple terms, the authors are trying to understand how the economic circumstances of one country can affect the fiscal policies of another country. They do this by analyzing the budget balances of OECD countries and identifying common fluctuations that are driven by international factors. The authors find that there is a significant amount of commovement in OECD budget balances, which suggests that international factors play an important role in shaping fiscal policies. They also find that a dynamic latent factor model can explain a large portion of the variation in individual budget surpluses across countries. Now, let's talk about why this is important. Fiscal policy is a critical tool that governments use to manage their economies. By understanding how international factors can affect fiscal policies, policymakers can make better decisions that will benefit their countries. For example, if a country is experiencing a recession, it may be tempted to increase government spending to stimulate the economy. However, if other countries are also experiencing a recession, this may not be the best course of action as it could lead to a global increase in debt. In conclusion, the PDF Common Fluctuations in OECD Budget Balances is an important piece of research that sheds light on the complex relationship between international economic circumstances and fiscal policies. By understanding this relationship, policymakers can make better decisions that will benefit their countries and the global economy as a whole. Thank you for listening to today's episode of our podcast and we hope you found it informative and interesting. Thank you for listening to today's episode of our podcast. We hope you found it informative and interesting. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. In summary, the PDF Common Fluctuations in OECD Budget Balances highlights the importance of considering international economic circumstances when analyzing fiscal policies by using a dynamic latent factor model to analyze co-movements in OECD surpluses, the authors show that there is a significant amount of co-movement in OECD budget balances, which suggests that international factors play an important role in shaping fiscal policies. Understanding this relationship is critical for policymakers, as it can help them make better decisions that will benefit their countries and the global economy as a whole. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we look forward to bringing you more informative content in the future.
Welcome to this podcast on monetary policy normalization in the United States. Today, we will be discussing the changes in U.S. monetary policy since the Great Recession and the Federal Reserve's plans to return to a state similar to that of December 2007. First, let's start with some background information. The Great Recession was a period of economic downturn that lasted from December 2007 to June 2009. During this time, the Federal Reserve implemented a policy known as ZERP, or Zero Interest Rate Policy. This meant that the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate at which banks lend to each other overnight, was set at a range of 0.25%. The goal of ZERP was to stimulate economic growth by making borrowing cheaper and encouraging spending. However, as the economy began to recover, the Federal Reserve realized that it needed to start normalizing its monetary policy. This process, known as policy normalization, involves gradually raising interest rates and reducing the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. The balance sheet is a record of the Federal Reserve's assets and liabilities, and it grew significantly during the Great Recession as the Federal Reserve implemented various programs to support the economy. So, why is policy normalization important? Well, one reason is that ZERP can have unintended consequences. For example, it can lead to excessive risk-taking by investors and encourage companies to take on too much debt. Additionally, if interest rates remain low for too long, it can lead to inflation and other economic imbalances. Now, let's talk about the Federal Reserve's plans for policy normalization. The Federal Open Market Committee, FOMC, which is the group responsible for setting monetary policy, has outlined a set of principles for policy normalization. These principles include being data-dependent, transparent, and gradual. In other words, the FOMC will only raise interest rates if the data suggests that it is appropriate, it will communicate its plans clearly to the public, and it will do so in a gradual and predictable manner. One of the key challenges facing the Federal Reserve in its policy normalization efforts is achieving liftoff. Liftoff refers to the first increase in the federal funds rate after a period of ZERP. The FOMC has indicated that it will only raise interest rates once it is confident that the economy is strong enough to handle it. This means that the FOMC will be closely monitoring a variety of economic indicators, such as inflation, employment, and GDP growth, to determine when liftoff is appropriate. Another important aspect of policy normalization is reducing the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet grew significantly during the Great Recession as it implemented various programs to support the economy, such as quantitative easing, QE. QE involves buying large quantities of government bonds and other securities in order to lower long-term interest rates and stimulate economic growth. To reduce the size of its balance sheet, the Federal Reserve has outlined a plan to gradually stop reinvesting the proceeds from maturing securities. This means that as securities in the Federal Reserve's portfolio mature, the proceeds will not be reinvested, which will gradually reduce the size of the balance sheet. However, the Federal Reserve has indicated that it has no plans to sell its assets outright. Overall, policy normalization is an important process for the Federal Reserve as it seeks to return to a state similar to that of December 2007. By gradually raising interest rates and reducing the size of its balance sheet, the Federal Reserve hopes to avoid the unintended consequences of ZERP and maintain
Hello and welcome to this podcast on the U.S. monetary policy before and after the Great Recession. In this episode, we will be discussing the changes in the Federal Reserve's policy rate and balance sheet, as well as the impact of these changes on the U.S. economy. First, let's start with some background information. The Federal Reserve, also known as the Fed, is the Central Bank of the United States. Its main responsibilities include conducting monetary policy, supervising and regulating banks, and maintaining the stability of the financial system. One of the Fed's key tools for conducting monetary policy is the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate at which banks lend and borrow reserves from each other. Overnight, by adjusting the federal funds rate, the Fed can influence the cost and availability of credit in the economy, which in turn affects spending, investment, and inflation. Before the Great Recession, the Fed's policy rate was relatively high, with the federal funds rate averaging around 5% from 2000 to 2007. However, as the financial crisis unfolded in 2008, the Fed began to lower its policy rate aggressively in order to stimulate the economy and prevent a deeper recession. By the end of 2008, the federal funds rate had been lowered to near zero, where it remained for the next seven years. In addition to lowering its policy rate, the Fed also implemented a series of unconventional monetary policies to further support the economy. One of these policies was quantitative easing, which involved purchasing large amounts of long-term securities such as treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities in order to lower long-term interest rates and stimulate borrowing and investment. As a result of these policies, the Fed's balance sheet grew significantly from around $900 billion in 2007 to over $4 trillion by the end of 2014. This increase in the Fed's balance sheet was controversial, with some economists and policymakers expressing concerns about the potential inflationary effects of such a large increase in the money supply. Despite these concerns, however, inflation remained relatively low during the recovery from the Great Recession. In fact, inflation consistently undershot the Fed's 2% target, leading some to question the effectiveness of the Fed's policies and its ability to achieve its inflation mandate. In recent years, as the U.S. economy has continued to recover and the labor market has strengthened, the Fed has begun to raise its policy rate again. In December 2015, the Fed raised the federal funds rate for the first time in nearly a decade, marking the beginning of a gradual tightening cycle. Since then, the Fed has continued to raise its policy rate gradually, with the current target range for the federal funds rate at 2.25-2.50%. Overall, the U.S. monetary policy before and after the Great Recession has been characterized by significant changes in the Fed's policy rate and balance sheet, as well as the implementation of unconventional monetary policies such as quantitative easing. While these policies have been controversial, they have also been credited with helping to support the U.S. economy during a period of significant economic stress. As the U.S. economy continues to evolve and new challenges arise, it is likely that the Fed will continue to adapt its monetary policy in order to achieve its dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability. As always, it will be important for policymakers and economists to carefully monitor the effects of these policies on the economy and to make adjustments.
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the challenges faced by the Federal Reserve in normalizing monetary policy. In this episode, we will be discussing the fear of liftoff and the causes behind it. First, let's start with some background information. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States, responsible for implementing monetary policy to achieve its dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability. In recent years, the Federal Reserve has faced challenges in normalizing monetary policy after a period of unconventional policy measures, such as quantitative easing and near-zero interest rates. One of the main challenges the Federal Reserve faces is the fear of liftoff. This refers to the concern that raising interest rates too soon or too quickly could harm the economy by slowing down growth and increasing unemployment. This fear is driven by a number of factors including uncertainty about the state of the economy, concerns about global economic conditions, and the potential for financial market volatility. To address this fear of liftoff, the Federal Reserve has taken a cautious approach to raising interest rates, gradually increasing rates over time, and closely monitoring economic data to ensure that the economy can withstand higher rates. However, this cautious approach has also led to criticism from some who argue that the Federal Reserve is not doing enough to normalize policy and that low interest rates are distorting financial markets and creating risks for the future. So, what are some potential solutions to this problem? One approach is to adopt a more systematic and rules-based approach to monetary policy. This would involve replacing the current discretionary approach with a transparent process of selecting and periodically adapting a simple and robust policy rule. This would ensure that monetary policy is systematic and robustly contributes to social welfare over time, while also retaining the flexibility to account for the evolution of our understanding of the economic environment. Another potential solution is to address the behavioral biases that human nature introduces into the policy process. This includes the tendency for policymakers to focus on short-term goals and to be influenced by political considerations. By adopting a more systematic approach to policy and by increasing transparency and accountability, the Federal Reserve can help to mitigate these biases and ensure that policy decisions are based on sound economic principles rather than short-term political considerations. Finally, it is important to consider the role that public choice and cognitive psychology perspectives play in understanding the challenges faced by the Federal Reserve in normalizing monetary policy. These perspectives highlight the importance of understanding the incentives and motivations of policymakers and the ways in which cognitive biases can influence decision-making. By taking these factors into account, the Federal Reserve can develop more effective policies that are better aligned with the long-term interests of the economy and society as a whole. In conclusion, the fear of liftoff is a major challenge facing the Federal Reserve as it seeks to normalize monetary policy. By adopting a more systematic and rules-based approach to policy, addressing behavioral biases, and taking into account public choice and cognitive psychology perspectives, the Federal Reserve can develop more effective policies that promote long-term economic growth and stability. Thank you for listening to our podcast on this important topic.
Hello and welcome to this podcast on human capital and development. Today, we will be exploring the factors that contribute to the differences in output per worker between rich and poor countries. We will be discussing the role of human capital, which is viewed as having both a qualitative and quantitative component. First, let's define what we mean by rich and poor countries in terms of labor productivity. Rich countries are those that have a high level of output per worker, while poor countries have a low level of output per worker. This difference in productivity is often referred to as the development problem and has been a topic of much debate in the economics literature. One key factor that has been identified as contributing to the development problem is human capital. Human capital refers to the knowledge, skills, and abilities that individuals possess and can use to produce goods and services. In this view of human capital as a central factor in explaining differences in output per worker, the amount of human capital of a high school graduate from, say, Rwanda need not be the same as the amount of human capital of a U.S. high school graduate. The two-dimensional view of human capital differs from a one-dimensional view in that it recognizes that the quality of human capital varies systematically with the level of development. This means that the typical individual in a poor country not only chooses to acquire fewer years of schooling, but also acquires less human capital per year of schooling. In other words, the quality of education in poor countries is often lower than in rich countries, which means that even if individuals in poor countries receive the same amount of schooling as those in rich countries, they may still have less human capital. So, how can policies be implemented to help poor countries improve their economic situation based on the understanding of the factors accounting for the gap in output per worker? The policy implications of this framework are clear. Policies that achieve small changes in increasing total factor productivity, TFP, and improving disease environments can have large long-run effects on output per capita. The effects are not primarily due to the direct impact of higher TFP. Rather, their indirect effects, those on the quantity and quality of schooling chosen by individuals, account for most of the impact. It is important to note that the effects described in this podcast refer to the long-run impact on the relevant variables, and they take place over several generations. For some reasonable parameterizations, it can take more than 40 years for an economy to converge to the new steady state. Moreover, some preliminary work suggests that the dynamic adjustment process may be quite bumpy, with periods of high growth followed by periods of stagnation or even decline. In conclusion, the role of human capital in economic development is a complex and multifaceted issue. While policies that improve disease environments and increase total factor productivity can have a positive impact on output per worker, the indirect effects on the quantity and quality of schooling chosen by individuals account for most of the impact. Therefore, policies that focus on improving the quality of education and increasing access to education can have a significant impact on the long-term economic growth of a country. Thank you for listening to this podcast on human capital and development. We hope that you have gained a better understanding of the factors that contribute to the development problem and the role of
Hello and welcome to our podcast on monetary policy in small open economies. Today, we will be discussing the role of monetary policy in achieving low and stable inflation while avoiding fluctuations in real economic variables. First, let's define what we mean by a small open economy. A small open economy is a country that is highly dependent on international trade and has a relatively small domestic market. Examples of small open economies include Singapore, New Zealand, and Iceland. In these economies, the exchange rate plays a crucial role in determining the competitiveness of domestic firms and the prices of imported goods. As a result, fluctuations in the exchange rate can have significant effects on the real economy, including output, employment, and inflation. Central banks and small open economies face a unique challenge in conducting monetary policy. On the one hand, they need to maintain low and stable inflation to anchor expectations and promote economic growth. On the other hand, they need to avoid fluctuations in real economic variables that can result from changes in the exchange rate. One way that central banks can achieve these goals is by using the nominal exchange rate as a policy instrument. This means that the central bank adjusts the exchange rate whenever there are changes in the economic environment such as changes in inflation or output. Another way that central banks can achieve these goals is by using the short-term nominal interest rate as a policy instrument. This means that the central bank adjusts the interest rate to changes in the economic environment. Both of these policy instruments have advantages and disadvantages. Using the nominal exchange rate as a policy instrument can help to avoid the overshooting effect on exchange rates that is characteristic of an interest rate rule. It can also lead to smaller and less volatile risk premiums that generate deviations from the uncovered interest parity condition. However, using the nominal exchange rate as a policy instrument can also lead to greater uncertainty and volatility in the real economy. This is because changes in the exchange rate can have significant effects on output, employment, and inflation. Using the short-term nominal interest rate as a policy instrument can help to anchor expectations and promote economic growth. It can also lead to greater certainty and stability in the real economy. However, using the short-term nominal interest rate as a policy instrument can also lead to the overshooting effect on exchange rates. This is because changes in the interest rate can lead to changes in the exchange rate that are greater than what is necessary to achieve the desired level of inflation. In conclusion, the choice of policy instrument for central banks in small open economies depends on a variety of factors, including the economic environment, the level of uncertainty and volatility in the real economy, and the desired level of inflation. Understanding the costs and benefits of alternative monetary policy rules is important for economic welfare. It can help policymakers to make informed decisions about the appropriate policy instrument to use in different economic environments. In this podcast, we have discussed the role of exchange rate rules in achieving low and stable inflation while avoiding fluctuations in real economic variables in small open economies. We have also discussed the advantages and disadvantages of using the nominal exchange rate and the short-term nominal interest rate as policy instruments. Thank you for listening to our podcast on monetary policy in small open economies. We hope that you have found this discussion informative and helpful in understanding the complexities of monetary policy.
Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an interesting and important topic that affects us all, income inequality. Specifically, we will be exploring a PDF file that delves into the quantitative macro versus sufficient statistic approach and the Laffer curve dilemma. First, let's define what we mean by income inequality. Income inequality refers to the unequal distribution of income among individuals or households within a society. This can be measured in various ways, such as the Gini coefficient, which is a statistical measure of inequality that ranges from 0 to 1, with 0 representing perfect equality and 1 representing perfect inequality. Now, let's turn our attention to the PDF file we will be discussing today. The author, Alejandro Badel, explores the concentration of income and the earnings distribution over time and the life cycle. He compares two different approaches to analyzing income inequality, the quantitative macro approach and the sufficient statistic approach. The quantitative macro approach involves building complex models that simulate the economy and its various components, such as labor markets, capital markets, and government policies. These models can be used to analyze the effects of different policies on income inequality and other economic outcomes. The sufficient statistic approach, on the other hand, involves using simple statistical measures such as the Gini coefficient to analyze income inequality. This approach is less complex than the quantitative macro approach, but may not capture all the nuances of the economy and its various components. Badell argues that both approaches have their strengths and weaknesses and that a combination of the two may be the most effective way to analyze income inequality. He also explores the Laffer Curve Dilemma, which refers to the relationship between tax rates and government revenue. The Laffer Curve suggests that there is an optimal tax rate that maximizes government revenue, but the exact location of this rate is uncertain and may vary depending on various factors. Badel's research also examines the concentration of income at the top of the distribution over the life cycle. He finds that income inequality tends to increase as individuals age, and that the top 1% of earners tend to be older than the rest of the population. He also explores the factors that contribute to this concentration of income, such as differences in education, skills, and work. Experience? Overall, Badel's research provides valuable insights into the complex issue of income inequality and the various factors that contribute to it. By exploring different approaches to analyzing income inequality and examining the concentration of income over the life cycle, Badel's research highlights the need for a comprehensive and nuanced understanding of this issue. Furthermore, his research has important policy implications. For example, Policymakers may need to consider the effects of different tax policies on income inequality and government revenue. They may also need to consider policies that address the factors that contribute to the concentration of income at the top of the distribution, such as education and training programs that help individuals acquire the skills and experience needed to succeed in the labor market. In conclusion, income inequality is a complex and important issue that affects us all. By exploring different approaches to analyzing income inequality and examining the concentration of income over the life cycle, Bedell's research provides valuable insights into this issue and highlights the need for a comprehensive and nuanced understanding of it.
Hello and welcome to this podcast episode on the effectiveness of central bank forward guidance. Today, we'll be discussing the concept of forward guidance, its impact on monetary policy, and the findings of recent research on the topic. First, let's define what we mean by forward guidance. Essentially, it refers to the practice of central banks communicating their future policy intentions to the public in order to influence expectations and behavior. This can take many forms, such as statements about the future path of interest rates or the use of specific economic indicators to guide policy decisions. The idea behind forward guidance is that by providing more information about their plans, central banks can help to anchor inflation expectations and reduce uncertainty in financial markets. This, in turn, can make it easier for businesses and households to plan for the future and make more informed decisions about spending and investment. However, there are also potential drawbacks to forward guidance. One concern is that it can be difficult for central banks to accurately predict future economic conditions, which could lead to confusion or loss of credibility if their guidance turns out to be inaccurate. Additionally, some critics argue that forward guidance can be too prescriptive and limit the flexibility of central banks to respond to changing economic conditions. So, what does the research say about the effectiveness of forward guidance? A number of studies have been conducted on this topic, including several that are cited in the PDF we're discussing today. One key finding is that forward guidance can be effective in influencing market expectations and reducing uncertainty particularly when it is clear and consistent over time. However, the impact of forward guidance can vary depending on a number of factors, such as the specific communication strategy used by the central bank and the economic conditions at the time. For example, some studies have found that forward guidance is more effective when interest rates are already low and there is limited room for further cuts. Overall, the research suggests that forward guidance can be a useful tool for central banks, but it is not a panacea and must be used carefully and thoughtfully. As with any policy tool, there are trade-offs and potential risks that must be considered. In conclusion, forward guidance is an important concept in the world of monetary policy that has received a great deal of attention in recent years. While there is still much to learn about its effectiveness and limitations, the research conducted so far provides valuable insights into how central banks can use communication strategies to influence expectations and promote economic stability. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. Thank you for listening to this episode on the effectiveness of central bank forward guidance. We hope you found it informative and helpful in understanding this important topic in monetary policy. If you're interested in learning more, we encourage you to read the PDF we discussed today, as well as other research on the topic. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, 
we will be discussing the fascinating topic of microfoundations of money, why they matter. This is a topic that is relevant to everyone as it concerns the fundamental workings of our economy and how money is exchanged in it. So, what are microfoundations? In simple terms, microfoundations are the building blocks of macroeconomic models. They are the individual behaviors and decisions of economic agents, such as consumers and firms, that collectively determine the overall behavior of the economy. Microfoundations are important because they allow us to understand how the economy works at a more granular level and to make more accurate predictions about how it will behave in the future. One area where microfoundations are particularly important is in the study of monetary exchange. Money is a fundamental part of our economy, and understanding how it is exchanged is crucial for understanding how the economy as a whole functions. In the past, many macroeconomic models treated money as a black box, assuming that it was exchanged in a certain way, without really understanding the underlying mechanisms. However, recent research has shown that this approach is inadequate and that we need to have a more detailed understanding of how money is exchanged in order to make accurate predictions about the economy. One of the key insights of the new monetarist school of thought is that the way money is exchanged depends on the specific characteristics of the goods and services being traded. For example, in a cash-in-advance model, buyers must have enough cash on hand to pay for a good before they can purchase it. In a cash-credit good model, buyers can purchase a good on credit and pay for it later. These different models have different implications for how money is exchanged and how it affects the overall economy. Another important aspect of microfoundations is the role of private information in economic decision-making. In many cases, economic agents have access to information that is not available to others, and this can have a significant impact on how they behave. For example, if a buyer knows that a seller is desperate to sell a good, they may be able to negotiate a lower price. Understanding how private information affects economic decision-making is crucial for understanding how the economy as a whole functions. Overall, the study of microfoundations is a fascinating and important area of research that has important implications for our understanding of the economy. By understanding the individual behaviors and decisions of economic agents, we can gain a more accurate picture of how the economy works as a whole and make more accurate predictions about how it will behave in the future. This is important not just for economists, but for everyone who is affected by the economy, which is to say, everyone. In conclusion, the study of microfoundations is a crucial area of research that has important implications for our understanding of the economy. By understanding the individual behaviors and decisions of economic agents, we can gain a more accurate picture of how the economy works as a whole and make more accurate predictions about how it will behave in the future. This is important not just for economists, but for everyone who is affected by the economy, which is to say, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and we hope you found it informative and thought-provoking.